The monstrous thought came into my mind as I perused the fixed eyes and the saturnine face, that this was a spirit, not a man. I have speculated since whether there may have been infection in his mind. So wonders the protagonist of Charles Dickens's ghost story, The Signalman. Claire Horton of Loughborough University explains how in Dickens's time the ability to see ghosts was linked to mesmerism, a practice that fired the imagination of the Victorians. This podcast was recorded during the series Late Summer Lectures in 2017, organised by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. Change is, and always has been, an inevitable consequence of life, and was arguably at its greatest during the long Victorian era, which saw major industrial, technological, social and scientific developments, particularly in the field of Victorian mental sciences, an early form of psychology. Before the 19th century, the mind had been viewed positively as a faculty which strengthened an individual's identity and contributed to defining a sense of self. But by the 1830s, this viewpoint had begun to change with the emergence of mesmerism, first brought to England by Austrian physician Franz Anton Mesmer. The practice of mesmerism was highly controversial and, due to its status as a pseudoscience, it was often discussed in popular newspapers, which warned women in particular of the danger it posed to their safety and moral reputations. However, such warnings did little to deter audiences. In fact, they had the opposite effect because they helped to publicise the sensationalism surrounding mesmerism and its apparent supernatural effects, including clairvoyant ability. In the majority of mesmeric performances, the mesmerist would be a man of middle-class background, whereas the subject would usually be a woman from the working classes. This not only exposed certain class and gender inequalities, but also created doubts concerning sexual propriety. For instance, in a typical performance, a mesmerist would use his hands to make so-called magnetic passes over his subject as he stared fixedly into her eyes. He would repeatedly move his hands over her body until she fell into a state of deep trance. During this time, the subject would respond only to the mesmerist's address and to his commands. She would appear to lose all consciousness and seem to embark on a series of mental voyages where she would be able to see into the future and share the thoughts of her mesmerist. The performance often lasted several hours at the end of which the mesmerist would awaken his subject using another series of magnetic passes. In most cases, the subject would have no recollection of what she had done or what had happened to her during the mesmeric trance, and the implications of this were an obvious cause for concern, especially when mesmeric performances took place within private dwellings. Partially as a result of its risque reputation, the number of mesmeric experiments taking place in Britain at this time was extremely high. In fact, its popularity spanned the entire social spectrum, and, as Alison Winter has successfully argued, this effectively changed Victorian culture by becoming one of its central preoccupations. This obsession contributed to a new Victorian perspective, in which the mind and body were viewed as conduits, through which important social, spiritual or natural knowledge would flow. However, audiences were divided in their opinions, and many were sceptical of the apparent supernatural powers of mesmerism. 
Conversely, others believe that mesmerism had the potential to unlock the unconscious and that it had discovered a new form of invisible force which was yet to be identified and unveiled new potentialities of the mind. Some of the reputed side effects of mesmerism included ghost seeing, which was often discussed in medical circles, especially in relation to involuntary functions of the mind, including dreaming, somnambulism, reverie, hallucination, and mental derangement. Such psychological states had previously been little understood, but advancements in mental science and the publication of Samuel Hibbert's sketches of the philosophy of apparitions and David Brewster's Letters on Natural Magic linked these conditions not only to the mind, but to memory itself. Such theories provided a new way of understanding the powers of the mind and attracted the attention of many novelists. One such author was Charles Dickens, who had a keen interest in the new mental sciences and was particularly interested in mesmerism. Indeed, Dickens was a self-confessed enthusiast and practiced the controversial technique on many of his friends and even on his wife, Catherine. He learnt the mesmeric process from his long-term friend and mentor, John Eliotson, who was a leading figure in psychiatric, psychological and psychical research of the time. Eliotson was a doctor at University College Hospital London, where he practiced mesmerism, but was later dismissed after being deceived by some of his patients. Despite this, Dickens remained Eliotson's close friend and continued to practice mesmerism. In 1845, he treated the wife of one of his friends, Madame Augusta de la Rue, who was suffering from convulsions and insomnia attended by spectral illusions. <clears throat> Dickens placed Augusta in a magnetic sleep, during which she confessed that she was often disturbed by the spectral figure of a man who appeared during the day and often caused her actual bodily harm. Dickens listened to Augusta's story and used the mesmeric process he had learnt from Eliotson to access her unconscious mind. After a lengthy investigation, Dickens concluded that Augusta's nervous system was disturbed and determined that this was responsible for her projections of the phantom rather than an actual ghost. In a subsequent letter to Augusta's husband, Emile, Dickens offered his own explanation for Augusta's ghost and wrote that mesmerism is a philosophical explanation of many ghost stories, though it is hardly less chilling than a ghost story itself. <clears throat> Dickens's first-hand experience of mesmerism and the mysterious powers of the mind made a significant impression on him and effectively changed his attitude towards ghost. ghosts. In addition, I believe this contributed to Dickens's understanding of Victorian mental sciences and early 20th century psychology. He understood, for instance, that ghosts could be produced by altered states of mind, such as dreams, hallucination and mesmeric trance. But the most fascinating aspect of the magnetised state for Dickens was its relation between the conscious and the unconscious self. As Jill Matus has written in Shock, Memory and the Unconscious in Victorian Fiction, Dickens seemed to understand the that the mesmerised state offered the prospect of finding out what it is we know, but do not know that we know. In other words, Dickens appeared to recognise the pre-forging concept that mesmerism or trance provided a gateway to the unconscious and the hidden depths of the mind. Depths that often conceal long-forgotten and sometimes inaccessible secrets. 
Dickens's fascination with mesmerism led him to explore its implications via his fiction, especially his ghost stories, but this aspect of Dickens's work has received relatively little critical attention to date. To demonstrate, this paper will focus on Dickens's most enduring ghost story, A Christmas Carol, which may be read literally or as a psychological explanation for so-called ghost seeing. The phantoms in A Christmas Carol materialised in the same decade as spiritualism, a close relation to mesmerism, and divided audiences across Britain and America into two distinct camps. Those who eagerly attended seances to hear voices of the dead, and those who questioned the spirits with much, with much the same scepticism that Scrooge reveals in his interrogation of Marley. Dickens's story reflects this dichotomy. Those who wish to believe in the supernatural or to be entertained by it have ample opportunity, since the text contains multiple supernatural occurrences, dreams and semi-visionary experiences to suggest a reality which transcends the ordinary. Yet for the cynical-minded reader, logical explanations abound and are easily discernible for those that wish to find them. On a psychological level, for example, the ghosts can be interpreted as the hallucinogenic creations of Scrooge's guilt-ridden and diseased state of mind. Indeed, Shane McCorstein has described A Christmas Carol as one of the strongest examples of the poetic use of the concept of hallucination, and in particular how this involved an interrogation of the waking dream. Scrooge spends Christmas Eve alone purposely withdrawn from all aspects of society. And Julia Briggs has argued that this type of alienation is key to understanding 19th century ghost stories such as A Christmas Carol. She writes that alienation is a powerful mental state in which the subject is forced to live with unassimilated and often distressing memories from the past. In a psychological sense, this produces the figure of the double, neither the self nor another, a powerful symbol of unresolved inner conflict. This is certainly true in Scrooge's case, as his self-imposed alienation contributes to a mental state in which he sees supernatural visions, including his own doppelganger. Furthermore, he has an unconscious association with his former business partner, which forces him to compare Jacob Marley's fate with his own. Indeed, the narrator describes the two men as kindred spirits and brings a ghostly, albeit humorous, edge to this familiar turn of phrase. As Scrooge walks home, he sees Marley's face in the door knocker, but the spectre is purposely ambiguous. It looks exactly the same as Marley used to look, and while ghosts do not tend to age or decompose, this could suggest that Scrooge is imagining rather than seeing an actual phantom. For instance, Marley's ghost could be nothing more than a memory, and Scrooge initially yields to this supposition when he describes the ghost as a humbug. But in spite of himself, he is unsettled. As he sits by the fire later that evening, he reflects on the day's events and imagines he can see Marley's face in the tiles. During this time, he experiences a state of altered consciousness, similar to mesmeric trance, because his mind is focused on his past memories of Marley rather than on his present surroundings. Indeed, as Louise Henson has pointed out, Reflection and memory play a crucial role in A Christmas Carol because they supply the ideas and recollected images from which each apparition is created. When Marley's ghost enters the room bearing its symbolic chain of capitalistic greed, 
Scrooge is immediately, is immediately sceptical and fights against his senses. He initially attributes the ghost's presence to an undigested bit of beef and argues that if he were to swallow a toothpick, he would be persecuted by a legion of goblins, all of his own creation. By claiming that the ghost is a product of his imagination, Scrooge effectively dismisses it. But because he associates himself with Marley, he is forced to compare the ghost's fate with his own. Therefore, despite his determination and his rational mind, Scrooge reluctantly admits to the ghost's reality. And this dilemma accurately reflects the mid-Victorian debate on spiritualism and mesmerism at the time. Traditionally, ghosts appear during the night, and the next ghost, the ghost of Christmas past, is no exception. As Scrooge lies in bed waiting for the spectre to appear, he is more than once convinced he must have sunk into a doze unconsciously. This is significant because it implies that Scrooge is in a state of hypnagogia, that is, a state between sleeping and waking. Interestingly, hallucinations or waking dreams are more likely to occur during such states because the mind is more susceptible at this time. The ghost of Christmas past is purposely constructed to represent the altered perspective that characterises the act of remembering. For instance, like a long-forgotten memory, it fluctuates in its distinctness and melts away in the dense gloom before reappearing distinct and clear as ever. Inevitably, however, time will have changed the clarity and accuracy of Scrooge's memories and, as a result, he does not experience a full representation of his past with the ghost. Instead, he merely witnesses fragments of isolated and unresolved distress which lack a sense of context. The first of these memories are of Scrooge's childhood, but they are difficult for him to remember. They are described as being locked away, shrouded in darkness and mist, until they are brought to consciousness and become clear. Despite Scrooge's difficulty in remembering the past, his first memory is a happy one and triggers a chain of recollections, each one connected with his school days. For example, the memory of his old boarding school prompts him to remember certain odours floating in the air, and each of these aromas stimulates forgotten thoughts and hopes and joys and cares associated with his childhood. This is a striking example of the power of associative memory. His recollection of the old boarding school is inextricably linked to various memories, images, sounds and aromas of the past. In fact, Scrooge's memory of the school is so powerful that he can smell its environment and even hear the voices of his former classmates. These factors make the vision seem real to Scrooge. Indeed, he believes he is not only revisiting the scene, but actually reliving it with the ghost as his guide. This belief is endorsed by the ghost when it tells Scrooge that the figures from his past have no consciousness of his presence. I think this is a significant statement for the ghost to make, because it reinforces the idea that Scrooge has become somewhat spectralised during his supernatural encounter. By this, I mean that the roles of living and dead have been reversed to a certain extent. Scrooge has become a ghostly onlooker to his own past. He can see his old boarding school, and he is in the presence of his old school friends, but they are unaware of his existence. Furthermore, like the ghost, Scrooge is powerless to intervene in the scene, and, despite speaking out, his voice remains unheard. Scrooge witnesses several scenes of the past, each of which holds painful recollections, so it is perhaps not surprising that he has tried to forget them in his adult life. 
Perhaps the most painful vision for Scrooge is that of his younger sister, Fan, to whom he was much attached. Scrooge is forced to remember his sister's untimely death and the fact that her surviving child is the nephew he despises. During Scrooge's interaction with the ghost of Christmas present, he visits this same nephew's house and finds pleasure in the Yuletide festivities. This prompts a change in Scrooge, and he is already on the road to redemption when the ghost shows him the horrifying vision of the abject children, ignorance and want. It is possible that Scrooge is shown these starving and neglected children to reinforce his redemption, but it is also possible that as a result of his newfound conscience, Scrooge feels guilty for his previous neglect of the poor. The abject children could, therefore, be psychological manifestations of Scrooge's guilty conscience, and this suggestion is reinforced when Scrooge's words come back to haunt him, as he remembers his previous comment that if the poor would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge's final guide is the terrifying ghost of Christmas yet to come, which personifies Scrooge's fears for the future, namely his own death and the absence of someone to mourn him. Draped and hooded, the ghost appears like a mist along the ground and shows Scrooge several visions of the future, each of which is connected with death. One of the most significant and hideous visions occurs in a dark room by a bare uncurtained bed, on which, beneath a ragged sheet, there lay a something covered up. The suggestion here is that the dead man is Scrooge's future self, but Scrooge cannot withdraw the sheet. He is powerless to do so, and so never sees the face of the dead man. This is important because it suggests that this future vision is psychological rather than actual. If this is the case, it could explain why Scrooge is able to change his future through conscious, willed effort. Scrooge's final vision of the future is his own neglected grave in a churchyard overrun by grass and weeds. Although this vision is shocking, it is a product of Scrooge's newfound guilty conscience and his self-realisation. Scrooge realises that he has the power to change his future and declares that he will live an altered life henceforth. In making this decision, Scrooge demonstrates the fundamental fact that he cannot continue to live solely in the present. He must assimilate past memories, learn from experience, and look to the future. When Scrooge is restored to his own time, the ghost of Christmas yet to come exits the scene, but it does not float out of the window like Jacob Marley, nor does it disappear like the other spirits. Instead, Scrooge sees an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and twindled down into a bedpost. This metamorphosis alludes to the hallucinatory nature of the ghost and implies that perhaps it was a bedpost all along. When Scrooge is restored to his rightful time, he drops to his knees to give thanks, but not to Christ. Instead, he directs his gratitude to his dead business partner and the festive season. Jacob Marley, heaven and the Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, old Jacob, on my knees. This demonstrates that Scrooge attributes his redemption to spiritual rather than specifically Christian influences. Furthermore, Scrooge believes that his ability to change the future is a supernatural power which has been bestowed on him by the ghosts, but he must also make a conscious decision to change the future for himself. Without this self-reflection or a positive desire to change his life, redemption is not possible. 
It could be argued, therefore, that Scrooge's rehabilitation is made possible by his supernatural visions. But if, as I claim, Scrooge experiences these visions under a state of trance or hallucination, his mind is responsible for their creation. The alternate future that Scrooge witnessed, including his own death, becomes a past memory of a future event, and the possibility of future memory was a concept that Dickens would have been aware of as a result of his experience with mesmerism. This preoccupation enabled Dickens to understand its relationship with the unconscious mind, and this effectively changed his perspective on ghosts and how they may be created. As I have argued in this paper, this perspective may be found in the pages of A Christmas Carol, but Dickens would take it to a higher psychological level in his later ghost stories, including The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain, and, perhaps most significantly, The Signalman, which is often regarded as Dickens's most complex psychological ghost story. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com. 